Every single thing we wear, eat, and use impacts real people and shapes our world. Behind all of it, there is a story, one you might not always expect to hear. From Fair World Project, I'm Dana Geffner, and you're listening to For a Better World, where we unpack the systems, pathways, and labor conflicts that underpin everything around us. So we're a nonprofit who talks a lot about the ways that our food system is rigged in favor of big corporations and about the ways that people are organizing to change that. I'm Dana Geffner, and I'm the executive director here at Fairwold Project. One of those companies whose names comes up a lot when talking about food is Nestle. They're the biggest food company in the world by their own calculations, with sales reaching over $90 billion a year. They make everything from dog food to chocolate to coffee to bottled water. They own upwards of a thousand brands. Names you've heard of like Purina Dog Food, Nescafe, and the famous Nestle Crunch Bar. And companies you might not have thought were Nestle, such as Perrier, San Pellegrino, and they've even got a stake in the upscale blue bottle coffee brand. Nestle is everywhere. Over the next few episodes, we're going to be talking about the Goliath of the food world. We'll be talking with people who have worked with them and people who are building a world that hopefully can take us far beyond what they've built. To get us started, Anna Canning, Fairwell Project's campaign manager, is going to delve into the chocolate industry and some recent events that means a lot for all of us working for a more just food system. So we talk about Nestle a fair amount. And before I get to the point of this episode, I need to address something that comes up every time we mention them. Every time we say something about Nestle, there's one story that comes up. Nestle is quite possibly the most boycotted company in the world, although there aren't really official statistics on that sort of thing. They are targeted by people trying to protect their water rights here in my home state of Oregon and in Michigan and all over the world. They are getting sued by former child laborers from farms in Cote d'Ivoire, Ivory Coast, We've supported small-scale farmers opposing their expansion plans in Mexico. But every time we mention any of these things, without fail, there's one thing that comes up. For your special baby, more than 50 million babies have been raised on this form of milk. Baby formula. Maybe you were already thinking about it. Maybe you've already started that email to remind me. If you weren't, here's the backstory. Back in the 70s, activists brought to light some pretty sketchy advertising practices by Nestle. They were marketing their baby formula to new parents in African, South Asian, and Latin American countries, giving free supplies to new mothers in hospitals, and promoting their formula as the best way to feed your baby. The problem was, once their free supply of formula went away, families then had to buy more formula, something they couldn't afford and might not have access to clean water to mix up. And if a baby's not breastfeeding, the mother's body will then stop producing milk. It's not like some switch that just turns on and off. That milk is gone. And so then those families are left with no good choices. The results? Malnutrition, waterborne illnesses, and hunger. Activists around the globe launched a boycott that lasted into the 80s. Nestle sued an NGO who put out a pamphlet calling them baby killers. And they ended up winning in court because the court couldn't find them specifically criminally liable for what happened to those babies. But the advocates did end up pushing the World Health Organization and others to step in and write new rules around the marketing of breast milk substitutes. And those campaigners won an even bigger victory. Even now, all these years later, anytime we post something on social media or send out an email mentioning Nestle, the first commenter always reminds us of baby formula. Those campaigners may not have won in court, but they won in the court of public opinion. I bring all this up, not just so you know that we haven't forgotten Nestle's baby formula debacle. I bring it up because despite all their marketing, trying to sell themselves as the friendly company who's going to feed the world, this is what people remember. Which is why the next thing has always seemed so incongruous to me. For about 10 years, the UK version of Nestle's Kit Kat bars were fair trade certified. Maybe I'm just an insider, 
but it seems pretty wild to me that a company getting sued by former child laborers on cocoa farms is also able to cash in on marketing a product as fair trade. But that's actually how most well-known fair trade certifications work. Certifications look at a specific product, that chocolate bar you're holding in your hand right now, and follow the paper trail on the ingredients that go into it. Most certification labels don't ask questions like, who owns this company? Or are they also supporting bad policies with their profits? For just about two decades now, we've had this idea that certifications will set standards and companies will voluntarily meet them in hope of getting people who care to buy their products. More money will then trickle down to the farmers, the companies will see that people care about ethics, and then will want to do better across all their supply chains. I think that's how the story goes. But is it working out? That's the simple version of the question we're going to be asking over the next few episodes. So, Nestle's Kit Kats were fair trade certified. That's past tense now. A few months back, they announced they'd be dropping fair trade and switching to Rainforest Alliance certification. And so, in this series, we're going to delve into that a little bit. We'll talk to some of the people most impacted by Nestle's decision, as well as some people who can help us step back and understand the bigger picture. We'll walk through the main ingredients in a Kit Kat bar one by one to get a better understanding both of this decision and to really probe the question of what it would look like to do fair trade here and now in 2020. To start with, we reached out to Frank Komen and Fortin Blay of the Ivorian Fair Trade Network. They work directly with the farmers growing the cocoa that went into these Kit Kat bars. Shortly after Nestle's decision to drop fair trade was released, they came out with a strong statement saying that Nestle, quote, stopping the relationship with fair trade is to silence our voices as fair trade producers, end quote. You can see the rest of that statement linked in the transcript on our website. My conversation with Franck and Fortin took place online and was translated from French. The voice you'll hear is not their own, but is the voice of the interpreter. I'm going to present myself. I am Frank Coma, and I'm, uh, I take care of the coordination of the Ivory Fairtrade Network, yes. The goal of the association is to contribute to the economic development of its members. And to do that, we have three kinds of intervention. First thing is to represent its members and to defend their interests. And the second one is to contribute to developing their their capacities, their possibilities. And the third one is to promote the, the goals of fair trade, fair trade market. The, the most important action is to defend interests of the farmers, and that's what we're doing right now. I see. So what kind of crops do the farmer associations or farmer organizations that you work with grow? Uh, in Ivory Coast, what we do mainly is cocoa. About 95% is cocoa. And who are the big buyers of that cocoa? There is Nestle is one of them. It's one of the biggest ones. According to the Ivorian Fair Trade Network, Nestle's decision to drop fair trade will impact a total of 16,000 fair trade cocoa farmers in Cote d'Ivoire. And those farmers? What have they heard from Nestle? Right now, we've heard nothing from Nestle, from Nestle. But Nestle got in touch with us, and we're getting ready to receive, to talk with Nestle next week. It, during that meeting, they're going to be explaining to us why uh, they made that decision that they made, and us. And we'll, we'll be talking together, and we're going to see together what we can do. But what we fear is that that person that's going to be talking with us uh, will not have the necessary authority in order to, to help because he's only an agent of the company, not one of the people who can actually do something. And that's part of the problem. These farmers are a long way from the people who actually make these decisions. Frank walks me through the long supply chain that takes cocoa from the farmer who grew it to Nestle. Small-scale farmers harvest their cocoa pods and then sell them to a local buyer who acts as an intermediary with the cooperative. The cooperative then sells to Nestle's intermediary, Barry Calabot or Cargill. These companies are some of the biggest in the world. Cargill's got their fingers in all sorts of products. Grain in the U.S. Midwest, palm oil, soybeans. They've been named, quote, the worst company in the world, end quote, by the NGO Mighty Earth for their footprint across all the countries where they do business. 
this long chain of intermediaries between the farmer who grows the cocoa and Nestle isn't just a bug, it's a feature of the system. It's designed to work this way. Cocoa farmer poverty, child labor, deforestation. Too often, when these big problems come up, companies like Nestle are conveniently able to throw up a big cloud of plausible deniability. And it also makes it so that Franck and Fortin are a long way from talking with the corporate decision makers. And that's even though they represent a national farmers association. We've got a rocky connection, so Franck and his, our translator cunt in and out a lot. But in between dropped calls, he tells me that one of the ways that a farmer knows that they're selling to Nestle is that they are part of Nestle's Cocoa Plan. Cocoa Plan is the name that Nestle's given to their own in-house social responsibility program. It's got some nice marketing slogans about how it tackles big issues in cocoa, but the standards aren't public. That means it's really hard to know what standards they're actually trying to meet when they say they're aiming for, quote, better lives, better farming, and better cocoa. Fortin explains Cocoa Plan from his perspective. It's not a certification. So Nestle is a buyer. So we need to create the conditions of productivity. They work with the problems of child labor. You may think that there are a lot of labels on a chocolate bar when you go to the grocery store, but there are also a ton of these programs for the farmers who grow the cocoa. A recent report found that there are 92 in West Africa alone. That's 92 different ways to attempt to fix the problems in the cocoa trade. People here in the States often tell us that all the ethical labeling and marketing claims in the shelf in the store are confusing. But 14 is completely clear on the distinction. Uh, I, I want to say that uh, the difference between Rainforest Alliance and the uh, federal system, everyone wants to know what is the federal system. The federal system promotes democracy, transparency, equity, and uh, the federal system promotes the human, human development. And uh, when he, the producer go to do rainforest, well, it is not the same, because rainforest is uh, environment protection, environment protection, only environment protection, not to help the producer. In the, the rainforest lands, you can it, you say, do that, do that, do that, do, give you the to-do list, and you can apply, you can execute. This is a very, very different. This is the key difference that Fortin is making here. While Nestle promotes their own cocoa plan, it focuses mostly on getting farmers to increase their productivity, to grow more in hopes of making ends meet. And Rainforest Alliance? Their frog label has farmers focus on a checklist of to-dos. Fortin makes a big distinction here between both of those and fair trade standards. Fair trade standards focus on transparency, equity, and human development, as he described it. And they go about it in a different way, too. The emphasis is on democracy, not on someone else's checklist. There is a minimum price guarantee with fair trade that doesn't exist with rainforest. But the premium for fair trade is higher than the one for rainforest. This premium is a small additional amount that a buyer pays per pound, or in the case of cocoa, per metric ton. On one side, the producer has control of the premium is used for, but on the other side, that is decided by chocolatiers, uh, by the industrial people. With fair trade, it's the producer who can, who has the control of how to spend the money. One of the most well-known talking points about fair trade is that there are minimum prices set for most products. That's really important when you have crops like coffee or cocoa, where the price goes up and down a lot, influenced by a lot of factors that a farmer has no control over. Despite years of criticism from advocates like us, Rainforest Alliance still doesn't set any sort of minimum price. They actually just redid their entire standard, but still no minimum price guarantee. Okay, so we're in a bit in the weeds with pricing right now but we're gonna stay here a minute longer because it's not just minutia. Let's be real, we're talking about a system that bills itself as sustainable, but is still okay with farmers being unable to feed their families or cover the cost of production. And this premium that 14 describes, this is a small amount per pound, or in the case of cocoa, per metric ton, that goes on top of the price paid for the crop. The current Rainforest Alliance premium setup makes it optional for buyers to pay that premium. In the fair trade system, there are a couple of these premiums. One to recognize that organic farming takes more time and effort. 
and then there's also one dedicated to social projects. Farmers, farmers who are members and owners of the cooperative, vote on how that premium gets spent. And as 14 points out, that's important. With fair trade, the producer is involved in all the decisions and he has a say in what's going on. Fair trade is the most beneficial for the producer. So in the time that you have been getting the fair trade price and the fair trade premium, can you tell me a little about some of the projects that the cooperatives have done with those premiums? They built school in villages and health centers also. They were able to, to dig wells to bring water to people. And they were able to train people for certain trades. What sort of trades? Training for farmers to do uh, what was needed in order to, to change the type of crops they would grow. That's something they were able to do also. Crops. Ah, so to diversify the farmers' crops. The social premium projects that we're talking about here might very well be one of the most talked about parts of fair trade. And for Frank, this is the part he keeps returning to. Not just what they do with their money, but how they get there. So when the, when the farmer can decide what to do with the money, he puts his heart into it and it's more long lasting. And, and when, when he's involved in all the decisions, it helps the farmer to feel valued and important. And when you that, it feels like a beggar. The producer needs to be heard. He doesn't need people to come and impose things on him. Because it's important because what he does is a trade. He needs to be valorized. He needs to, he needs to feel worth. So if we want a project to be sustainable, uh, we need to include the producer. Because we've seen in cooperative uh, projects that were initiated by uh, chocolate companies or industries because the producer was not involved in in uh, in decision making so it was not his his immediate focus so with fair trade the cooperative uh, makes development plans every year with fair trade producers can think about the future uh, and to plan for long-term projects. But, but on the other side, the producers don't, don't, are not involved in decision-making, so that they have to wait for instruction and people tell them what to do. Frank keeps coming back to this point. And I do too. Because listening to him, it seems pretty obvious, right? If you want something to last, people need to be invested in it. It needs to be something that matters in their lives. But the number of so-called corporate social responsibility programs or labels that are not set up this way is staggering. And the dynamics of this are more than just standard top-down corporate management where your bad boss tells you what to do and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. There's a really long history here. And when you think about that history, what Frank's describing here really mirrors colonialism. There are centuries of precedents for European companies, governments, standard-setting organizations, all of them, taking this role of deciding what would be best for people living here in Côte d'Ivoire. These companies of what's often called the Global North created the problem of cocoa farmers living in poverty by treating them like a source for cheap ingredients. And now they're repeating that pattern, setting the terms of what gets called ethical, and once again, cutting out the actual people and communities. To be clear, Franck doesn't quite put it on those terms. We need not to, to, to make the producer a tool for production, a production tool, but he needs to remain a human person, a human being. But his words really drill home how that system treats farmers. Through its organized farmer groups, he sees fair trade as something fundamentally different. And that difference? It's the difference between a future with cocoa farming and one without. The fair trade gives uh, the producer a voice to speak up. Uh, we really want to ask for to be allowed to continue to work with fair trade. And with this system, the producer can pass on his training to the next generation. So if there is not 
a next generation to follow up on the work, there is no sustainability. As the years go, the producer is learning more and he doesn't want to stay in an environment where everything is dictated to him. When the producer is not involved in the decision, uh, he eventually he's going to stop because uh, he doesn't have a say-so. Yeah. So in your cooperatives, do you have, are many of the youth then staying to become cocoa farmers or are they not interested? There's not many young right now who are interested in uh, the production of cocoa because they see how parents are suffer their parents are suffering they see how everything is already decided for their parents so they are not motivated so if the system that comes in makes the the motivation of the farmer disappear that would cause a problem for the future because many of the producers are getting old so for the future, if Nestle says no, they will not keep on working as fair trade, what does the path forward look like for the farmers that you work with? If Nestle doesn't change his decision, the producers will lose their motivation. It's because if there was a producer who was used to be able to decide what he could do, now it's like his, his mouth is going to be closed. Somebody's going to close his mouth now. We're not just talking to Nestle. We want to talk to the whole industry. If Nestle doesn't change his decision, uh, the, the producer will have to make do what he has to do, but it will be like dehumanizing the producer. I'd like to say that we, we, we address the whole cocoa industry. This question of the sustainability of cocoa that Frank brings up is not an idle threat. It seems like every few months there's a new article out talking about how cocoa is on the path to extinction with climate change. We're going to get to that part in a later episode. But what Frank is saying here is that the biggest threat to the future of cocoa farming is this path we're currently on. This system that treats the people who grow cocoa as just tools to produce more is going to destroy itself if we don't change course. I asked him what the alternative looks like. What would it look like to have a truly fair chocolate trade? It's a market where everybody has a say-so, uh, can give their opinion, and where no, no party is set aside. Everybody works together, where everybody can express themselves, and where there is a fair price. Before we finish, okay. do you have any last words that you would want to say to people in the U.S. about chocolate? Thank you to all those who are in that system. Behind the consumption of chocolate, there is a whole community of people to, to look at. That is a very good point. I think sometimes when you're in the store, you only see the label and you do not know all the people and the stories behind it. It should encourage people to to, to continue consuming fair trade products because before the behind the fair trade products there is a valorization of many people and it gives a smile to a child. Now that Franck and Fortin have gone in depth on this decision and what it means to their network of small-scale cocoa farmers, we're going to zoom out for our next conversation. That last line about a child's smile from Franck is actually a really good way to ground ourselves for the next interview. My next guest is Simran Sethi. She's a writer who has written a book on chocolate, as well as coffee and wine, and done an entire podcast on chocolate. When I asked her how she first got interested in chocolate, she cut straight to the chase. You know, I've eaten chocolate my entire life. It's brought me such extraordinary joy. I, I write in my book, you know, it was my every birthday cake. It was my wedding cake, and it helped me get through my divorce, you know? So it's been this substance of, of real of solace. I have to admit, Working in the field I do and talking about chocolate from a policy sort of perspective, I've become a real buzzkill about it. But both Simran and Frank rein me in a little bit. Chocolate itself is a delightful thing. It's the corporate structures that we've built up around it that are the buzzkill. When I went 
for the very first time in Ecuador, which is one of the places, you know, in the upper Amazon where chocolate, where cocoa was born. Um, and I realized I couldn't recognize it in nature. You know, I had absolutely no mm. idea. And the process, you know, this, this bumpy pod that could be yellow or deep purple or mottled yellow and green or orange. At the other end of that, recognizing we eat the seeds, the seeds that are actually this beautiful lavender color and that are super bitter become this extraordinary product that we call chocolate. That transformation was so revelatory to me. Um, I wanted to focus there. And so I have spent a lot of time <laughs> oh, writing about chocolate in my book and a number of articles for publications ranging from like, yes, and, uh, you know, the Wall Street Journal to the Washington Post and Smithsonian, and then creating, you know, what became the world's first kind of comprehensive chocolate podcast. So it's, it's something that's very close to my heart, because I think it's something we love. And it's something that holds the whole world, issues ranging from science and politics to geography and justice. Um, so that's, that's why it really, it really took over and captivated me. <laughs> There's so many threads that you can pull out yeah. from chocolate. In all of that exploration that you've done about chocolate and the trade, the science, the food itself, what really sticks with you? Well, I think for me, what really sticks to me, and I'm someone who has actually done like sensory analysis training and how to taste cocoa. Like I've done, you know, I, I, I was a visiting scholar at the Cocoa Research Center. I've learned how to make chocolate. Like I really have done my best to learn about a lot of the continuum and the part of the chocolate story that sticks out to me the most is the, are the opening chapters and by that, I mean the farmers behind the crop. You know, it's like, um, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's this robust industry and it's this extraordinary product. And yet all most of us know about it are the people who grow cocoa. Maybe, maybe we know that they live in, in poverty. And beyond that, that's sort of the whole story. There's not any sense of agency. There's not any sense of stewardship. There's not any respect or gratitude for these people who are really living on the margins, you know, who are growing a crop that brings us joy, but are suffering immensely in the process. And that's to me, that's why I've dedicated so much of my work to talking about that part of the story, because I think um, without, without cocoa farmers, we don't have chocolate. And yet, and yet, you know, we focus a lot on the makers. We focus a lot on what you can do with cocoa. We focus a lot on making a chocolate dessert, you know, but what we need to do is keep shining a light on the farmers behind the crop. Yeah, that's such an interesting juxtaposition that you talk about there that we think of cocoa as being this really luxurious thing, but the people who make it are in such poverty <laughs> and it's a simple exactly. observation but yeah how do like can you maybe share with us a little bit about how that imbalance has come to to be absolutely and i'll say you know one of the things about it being a luxury is like it's an affordable luxury and i think for that reason it's really important for us to understand um like the lives of the people who make that possible and who are not, you know, getting paid luxurious prices for it, right? So I think many of us grew up thinking, okay, like a chocolate bar, candy bar, I should say more specifically, which only probably has like 10% cocoa content, if, if even that, should cost like a dollar, a buck 50, you know, back in the day, it was 50 cents, you know, and, and now we see with the, with the emergence of the craft chocolate movement, an understanding that this is a quality product, like something like coffee, and that it should actually, the price should be reflective of the labor that goes into it. And, um, and I, to answer your question about how this came to be, how did we get this idea, you know, that, um, that we can sort of see it as an indulgence, but the people who make it are, are on the margins and are not recognizing some of those, um, 
you know, the, the price kind of, they're not being given a, a fair price for, for the work that they're doing. I think that comes with the decoupling, right? So if we look at a crop like coffee or even like cocoa, they're grown in one place. Cocoa is grown in an equatorial band, 20 degrees north and south of the equator. But it's often been turned into this quote unquote luxury product in the global north, right? So um, it gets shipped to places like Amsterdam, it gets shipped to Europe, it gets shipped to the United States. And that's, which the United States is like the world's chocolate factory, you know, most of the major manufacturers are headquartered there. Um, and that's where it becomes this other thing. And that's where it goes from being this commodity that gets a really low price to the product that gets a significantly higher price. Um, and that decoupling is the thing that keeps us from understanding the plight of cocoa farmers, of coffee farmers, because we simply don't know them, right? We think about, you know, maybe the chocolate maker down the street, the coffee roaster down the street, or that Willy Wonka kind of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory fantasy. We go to Hershey, Pennsylvania, visit the chocolate factory there. We have a closer relationship with those entities than we do with the farmers. And that, again, is underscored by what I, I shared I've been eating chocolate for, you know, a good 45 plus years. I had absolutely no idea where it came from. I could not recognize this product in nature, but I would argue it's one of the most important food products in my life. Like not the one, like not a nutritional staple, but a spiritual one, you know, like a soul <laughs> staple. So like that's yeah. nonsense, right? That's crazy that I couldn't even, I couldn't, I was standing in that forest going, where is it? Where is it? And then... You know, they crack open the pod, the folks I'm with, these farmers and some other folks. And again, I'm like, well, where's the chocolate? Because when you crack open the pod, you see these pulpy, you don't even recognize there's seeds in there, right? It's just this pulpy mass. It looks like, I don't know, to me, like that chiclet's gum, like, you know, a little set into this oblong pod or all of these, these pulpy orbs. So again, like, where's the chocolate? And and here I am, I'm writing a book on chocolate and I haven't yet discovered this, right? So just to say this, mm -hmm. how this came to be is the story of capitalism. It is the story of the commodification of food. It is the more we can separate the people who create these products from the end product, the more ability there is to shift the price, the more ability there is to shift the amount a certain entity will get for that product, right? And it just, mm -hmm. it takes us further away. It takes us away, like they're not centered in our care because, because they've been engineered not to be. This point that Simran is making is so key. When I talked to Fortin and Frank, they pointed out that they didn't even get Nestle's decision to drop fair trade from Nestle directly. While Nestle in the UK might have met with some fair trade campaigners, they didn't meet directly with the people whose lives will be most impacted by their decision. It's just one way that the system is engineered to take farmers out of the story, to make them just another input in a chocolate bar. I asked Simran what her response was to Nestle's decision to drop the fair trade certification for their UK version of the Kit Kat bar. I had many thoughts. Um, I had thoughts about Nestle being one of the biggest food and beverages companies in the world and a lot of the commitments they've made and how quickly and readily they dropped them. Like they were one of the first companies to make zero deforestation commitments, um, you know, but they only started monitoring their supply chain when there was this big expose done by an NGO called a mighty earth. They were, you know, cited for their child labor challenges and they made commitment after commitment after commitment that they have continued to break. And I am assured that under COVID, they and a number of other major chocolate manufacturers will be saying the same thing. We simply cannot monitor our supply chain, right? We cannot oversee everyone. And yet at the same time, what they say is, but let us monitor ourselves. Like we will... We'll, we'll do sustainability on our own, thanks. Like we've shown through our track record that we're actually not going to adhere to the external commitments we made, but now let us just take care of ourselves. So I guess 
going back to your question, I think to myself, you know, organizations worked so hard to get Nestle to make that commitment to fair trade certification. And then they agreed to do it for their, I think it cookets their most popular bar. Um, and then they decided to drop it. And it's, it's, it, you know, it, it again, to me underscores the fact that the industry as a whole is not committed to actually uplifting farmers out of poverty. As in our earlier conversation with 14 and Frank, the number of corporate social responsibility programs that companies have launched comes up. It's really disheartening to me to see how much effort is made to create individual protocols. Like one company will have this sustainability thing. One will have another. They don't work together. They don't hold themselves accountable and they don't explain the bigger context within which they work. And so it becomes really hard for consumers to understand what child labor remediation looks like, to understand what deforestation um, commitments actually look like. Because they'll say, oh, well, we, you know, we just did X for 150,000 farmers, right? But not recognizing, like, this is within the context of millions of farmers, you know, for example, like the, the child labor monitoring or remediation systems that are in place, they've reached less than 20% of over 2 million children that are impacted. Right. But then you'll see a company say, Oh, look at the great things that we're doing. Or they'll say, Oh, okay, well, we're not, we're not gonna, we're not, you know, we're dropping this certification, but don't worry, we've got our own program in place and we're going to take care of it. And it's like, well, what, under what like history should we believe that you're going to take care of it? And when we look at a company like Nestle to come back to your, you know, original, original comment, it's like they have proven time and time again, not only with chocolate, but beyond chocolate, that they are not up to that challenge and that they are not interested in doing much beyond increasing value for their shareholders, not for the stakeholders every single person and place and community that is part of that long supply chain, but rather focused on those who own, you know, own shares in their company. Yeah, it really is a stark difference there for sure. And so, you know, looking then at the people who are going to be most impacted, who I would argue are sort of some of the key stakeholders there in Cote d'Ivoire, which is one of the top producers of cocoa. Can you talk a little bit about that place and what cocoa has meant for that country? So for Ivory Coast in West Africa, I think a lot of people maybe don't realize that coffee and chocolate are African foods, y'all. <laughs> um, the majority of cocoa is grown in West Africa, predominantly in Cote d'Ivoire, in Ivory Coast. And it is the lifeblood of that country. It is one of the sustaining crops. Now, unfortunately, cocoa is an export crop. And the country is reliant upon major manufacturers to ensure that farmers are compensated. It is a complex um, cal calculus. It is a complex set of relationships that involve manufacturers, not you know, um, international manufacturers, as well as local governments, as well as end consumers. And those are just a few of the players involved. But the, the ones who are most vulnerable in this chain are those farmers. And I think back to a couple of years ago when the bottom fell out of the commodity market for cocoa. And overnight, those farmers lost like, I think it was one third of their income. Now, if we think about the industry of farming, first of all, it's a, it's a very risky endeavor, right? Um, farmers have to put their labor and any money that they're putting toward inputs into that crop in hopes that it will grow. And the perversion of economics is when you have an oversupply, when you did your job, <laughs> double thumbs up, you did your job. And, the, and, you know, Mother Nature smiled upon you and it was a really bumper crop. So you got an overabundance of cocoa. Well, what happens? Or any crop. What happens when you have an oversupply? Well, law of economics says the price for that crop is then going to drop. 
So you put in all this labor as the farmer, and then you see your labor devalued after you've already harvested it. In the case of grains, right? You can store something or oil. If we think of another commodity, you can store that away until the market kind of readjusts, right? So you can hold back some of that supply. Cocoa starts to ferment, ferment, and then starts to rot as soon as it's harvested. It's not one of the ones that you can hold back, right? So you Mm got to sell it and you're selling it more likely than not to a middle person, a middle man, because they are typically men, who will then go on to sell that crop again. And so you'll get paid, if you're a cocoa farmer, the lowest amount for that crop. And then it will increase, this, the, the, the earnings will increase as it moves up the chain for the various players involved. But you're the one, you're the most vulnerable. You're the, ones who, you're the one who has to get rid of it. And I think that's what we've seen here is a country that has, has been shown to be incredibly vulnerable to external players, right? Even mm-hmm. the government has recognized. And that's why I'm heartened to see some of these relationships forming between Ivory Coast and Ghana, as an example, two of the, the, the largest producers of cocoa in the world, to say, we are going to try to take some of our power back. Because it, fundamentally, this is about poverty. And when you have poverty, you have challenges like child labor come out of that. There are no parents who want to send their children. They would much rather send their children to school, excuse me, rather than have them work in a field, right? Like that's just the truth of it. But if you, if you need children to be working in order to feed yourselves, then you do this. There is no country that would rather deforest. Yet what we have discovered is that Ivory Coast between 1990 and 2015 lost 85% of its forests, right? So Mm -hmm. same places that are vital for biodiversity, that hold wildlife populations, that are allegedly protected, are the very same places that are being compromised. And so, um, so what this has meant, you know, what these kinds of things mean, these multinational corporations making decisions to say, we're no longer going to certify our cocoa. We're going to just have at it on our own. We're going to make a set of decisions on our own. We're going to prioritize shareholder value over the stakeholders, including the places uh, where cocoa grows and the people who grow it means that, that there's less accountability, you know, and it means that, that there will be greater suffering in countries like Ivory Coast. It was interesting um, talking to some of the farmers from uh, the organization that was selling to Nestle. Uh, and what they kept saying is, you know, people talk about sustainability in cocoa. And the thing that is sustainable is if we feel like, if our farmers feel like they have choices and they feel like they have power. And that is what is going away. And you can talk as much as you want about sustainability, but if people don't feel like they have power to make their own decisions, then there is no future. Exactly. And what is sustainability? It's this unwieldy concept that is defined by each institution individually, right? Like we don't have Mm -hmm. an overarching notion as a global community, as consumers, chocolate lovers, whomever, of what sustainability is. I actually teach courses on sustainability, graduate courses on sustainability communications. I say, ask. The very first question you should be asking is, how do you define sustainability? And they'll throw out people, planet, and profit, right? Like, And they'll throw out these sort of, okay, what do you mean when you talk about people? Oh, well, livelihoods. Okay, how many people are you talking about, right? So you have to keep getting granular. And that's how we get to these things where it's like, wow, your your sustainability plan only addresses 5% of the farmers growing cocoa. Another thing that makes sustainability so difficult to define is that too many of these programs are coming at it from a consumer's point of view, not a farmer's. And I think there needs to be a lot more nuance in how we approach farming. And that should include something like being willing, some things like being willing to pay more and recognize how difficult it is to grow these crops, be willing to understand 
organics grown in monoculture is not the solution. Be willing to start to understand something like the concept of agroecology, understand what biodiversity means, like do a little homework on our, on our side around something that is so precious, this intimate commodity that we call food. So we can make decisions that also give us choice that are in service of what we want to support, not just sort of these blanket like, okay, well, I hit the certification. Sustainability is a hard concept to pin down. And even if we can, if we pin it down from the right perspective and consider the nuances, the reality is that sustainability is not enough. We collectively, as people who live on this planet, are at a point that's past what can be sustained. And cocoa is one of those crops that's most at risk from the climate consequences of unchecked capitalism. I asked Simran how our current climate crisis is impacting cocoa and the people who grow it. So it grows in that band I mentioned, right? That that thin band, 20 degrees north and south of the equator. Think about what a, a warming planet does to, to a band around the equator. You know, like it's drought, mm -hmm. it's excessive rainfall, it's extreme weather, it's soil salinity, right? It's an increase in the salinity of soil. All of these things impact yield. And that in turn impacts the livelihood of cocoa farmers because cocoa farmers are paid for the amount of cocoa that they grow, not the quality. Cocoa is a highly vulnerable crop and um, climate change is here. And the people who are growing cocoa are being adversely affected by climate change already. That's what all these storms are doing. That's what the volatility of these hurricanes are doing. You know, just as an example, in Mexico, we have seen, you know, a heat wave that we hadn't seen in 30 years, a storm that we hadn't seen in 17 years. This climate volatility, these extreme weather events are becoming a more regular occurrence. Um, add to that the layer of pandemics that we will surely not see the last of. And we recognize like we need to start solving these problems. So I have often talked about climate change um, through the lens of chocolate because again, it's something that people can get their heads around. You might not, oh gosh, understand sea level rise and isolation. But if I tell you like your cocoa is being compromised, maybe you'll start to pay attention. Um, and and it is. It is being compromised. It is impacting yield. It is impacting flavor. It is impacting the people who grow the crop. Yeah, that's, it is a grim outlook to, in many ways. Uh, it is. It is only grim, though, if we don't do anything about it. And I think that's the mm -hmm. key here. Like, yeah, I haven't painted some glorious picture of the chocolate factory. But the thing is, we're all the Charlies. Like we all have agency here to help reshape what this industry looks like. And if chocolate isn't your jam, like figure out which crop is and go do the work there because every crop is, is impacted. Like the world is impacted. Agriculture is impacted. And I think that's what I really want people to understand. Like it's, it feels dark, but these are solvable problems. They're within our purview, poverty alleviation is in our purview. We can stop deforesting. We can stop like these trajectories that we're on if we start to make a different set of decisions, if we elect a different set of politicians, if we hold the institutions accountable. Like get off your duff and write a letter to Nestle and tell them, hey, guess what? Because you have stopped, doing this thing, I have stopped buying your chocolate. I am now supporting X company instead. Like if enough of us start to do these things, these things will change because that's the supply chain. Like they rely on selling their supply and we are the end of that chain as consumers. And I think now more than ever, we have an opportunity to to show, to flex our power. I think we relied on you know other entities to do it, but it starts with writing those letters. It starts with deciding like, I am gonna choose this product over that product, but it doesn't end there. It's not about individual change, it's about systemic change and recognizing our role in enacting that as well. That's really well put. <laughs> and I think that takes me to kind of our final question for you, because I know we're running on, towards the end of time. What would a 
look like if there were a truly fair ethical chocolate trade? What would that look like to you? To me, it would look like recognizing that relationship with the people who grow cocoa and compensating them fairly for it. Right now, cocoa farmers earn between, and these are old statistics, there's not like new data, but less than a dollar a day, right? Or between three to six cents for every dollar we spend on chocolate. So like, just think about that for a second. You need a chocolate bar and three cents go back to a cocoa farmer. Like, is that commensurate with the amount of joy that you got from that chocolate fix? And if not, what is our responsibility to shift that? How can we show our gratitude in a way that's tangible, right? And I think that's what we need to start looking at. How can we be accountable to each other? I used to live in Lawrence, Kansas, and there was a mural of a Gwendolyn Brooks poem. She's an extraordinary African-American poet. And the poem ends with, um, we are each other's harvest. I'm, I'm mangling it a bit here, but we are each other's business. We are each other's harvest. We are each other's magnitude and bond. And I love that because what that points to is interdependence. You know, without cocoa farmers, there is no cocoa, but also without cocoa consumers, without chocolate, with consumers, chocolate lovers, there is no chocolate. So how can we complete that circle? And I don't have a perfect answer for it, but I think it starts with paying attention to them um, and learning more about their lives and recognizing, you know, that, that, that farmers, people all over the world want the same things. We want our kids to be safe. We want to have good lives. Um, there was a cocoa farmer I met in Ecuador who says, you know, you're with, with each bar of chocolate, you're eating my hopes and my dreams. And that really has stayed with me. His name is Vicente Norero. And, um, and I think about that. I think about that with the coffee I drink. I, and the coffee farmers I met in, in Ethiopia, I think about that with the chocolate, the cocoa farmers I've met now all over the world, that, that what they pour into this crop that becomes this glorious thing that we love is are their hopes and dreams for their futures and for the lives of their children and, um, and their legacy. And I think that's something that that's the seed that, that starts to answer that question of what a truly fair chocolate trade would look like. It's a trade that centers farmers, not manufacturers. It's a trade that centers by centering. I mean, like pays them fairly. That is just, that gives farmers a, a rightful seat at the table with a voice that is as loud as the end manufacturers, you know, that is heard and honored. It is one that writes this extraordinary in just billion dollar industry that pays pennies on the dollar to farmers, that that equation shifts. Um, that's what a truly fair chocolate trade looks like to me. Well put. One thing that I find so striking, you know, you cited that three to six cents that a cocoa farmer makes mm -hmm. from a bar of chocolate. And, you know, within my lifetime, that's gone, that three to six cents yeah. when I was a kid was 16 cents. Exactly. In the 80s. Yeah, it's gone down. Yeah. <laughs> and everything else in the world has gone up, right? Yeah. The cost of living, everything. And that share of the bar has gone down. Mm -hmm. And those companies have continued to get richer because of that. Exactly. I remember when the bottom fell out of the market and there was a call with one of these major manufacturers, I think it was Mondelez, and they talked about, I got on the investor call, you know, they do them uh -huh. every quarter, and they, they bragged about their earnings, you know, and that's the perversion of this system. In 2016, the prices on the cocoa trading markets plummeted. The crops that farmers had worked so hard to grow lost one-third of their value on the New York market where cocoa is traded like stocks or oil. A 33% decrease in whatever earnings they were planning for at the end of the season. Meanwhile... Did the price of a Twix drop? No, it did not. It held right. constant. So where did that money go, right? It went right back to that manufacturer. And that, like, now we see all those fissures in these systems, like... When we see meat packers going, being pushed back to work, when we see that these systems were engineered to work this way, 
right? And to exploit like inequality. Like here is our chance to call them out on this and to not let them get away with it. Not another one of these years of missing your targets on child labor or on deforestation. Like start to take strong stances, start to ask your elected officials, do you support, you know, trade agreements that, that, like that encourage, you know, fair and equitable compensation for cocoa farmers? What kinds of things do your local governments allow for? What kinds of things does your, like your domestic, you know, government allow for? Like there are trade policies in place that, that should protect farmers, you know, domestically and internationally. And we just need to do a little homework to make sure that they do. And I want to leave hmm. listeners with that. Like one thing you can start to do right now is think about where your chocolate is made. We have extraordinary craft chocolate makers all over the world, but I hold a very special place in my heart for the chocolate makers who are also at origin because what that does is it keeps that money within that community. So I'm not saying like stop supporting your craft chocolate makers in North America or Europe or wherever, but I'm saying start to maybe apportion some of that to the craft chocolate makers that are also there at Cocoa Growing Origins, because keeping some of that money in that economy is an extraordinary thing. And some of those ah, places are really new to manufacturing cocoa and building up that appetite. So for example, Ivory Coast, right? They don't have a tradition of eating chocolate, right? So it's just a crop that they grow. But slowly, slowly, they're makers at origin. And let me tell you something, that relationship is transformed when you're not just harvesting a crop, you're harvesting a food that you love. So by building up those not only cocoa growing origins, but those chocolate making places, we start to create a, an industry that's more robust and more delicious. Thanks so much for joining us on For a Better World. This week, we've taken a look at cocoa and the bigger picture of the people who grow it and systems that bring it to our supermarkets. Join us next time as we tackle the next ingredient in a Kit Kat bar, sugar. You've been listening to For a Better World, a podcast by Fairworld Project. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to subscribe, review, and share with your friends. Head to our website, fairworldproject.org, to sign up for our newsletter. It's the best way to stay in the loop with our work and take action to support the movements you hear about on this show. Fairwell Project is a nonprofit organization and we rely on donations to keep our work going. If you liked what you heard or learned something new, consider becoming a monthly donor. Your contribution will help us continue to bring you stories from around the globe. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to stay up to date between episodes. For a Better World is made possible by our small but mighty team, our show is edited by Stephanie DeLeon-Seek. Jenica Cadell is our producer. Anna Canning is our scriptwriter. Our storytellers are Ryan Zinn and Anna Canning. Our music was composed by Mark Robertson. And I'm your host and executive director of Fairworld Project, Dana Geffner. Thank you for listening. <laughs>